Father, we just stand in your presence. All of us, Lord, not just who are in this room, wherever, whichever place, whichever country they are watching from, your children. If under the old covenant, Aaron could stand between the living and the dead and stay the plague, how much more can we under the new covenant? And I pray every one of your children, wherever they are, in their apartment, in their street, in their town, in their city, in their country, will stand there as a royal priesthood. Even as we worship, even as we look at the word, we will never forget our real function. We are called to stand between the dead and the living. And make intercession. Hear our cry, Lord. More than physical death, which is just a symbol. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of indecision. Dying, perishing spiritually. Only the church has the power to stand in between. Because only the church has life. Because you said in your word, in him is life, and that life is the light of men. So I pray all your children, stand up in this dark hour. And those who are perishing will see that life and that light. Speak to us now, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So the one day lockdown has become 10 days. And uh, under the circumstances and restrictions as far as possible, we will try to meet as often as we can. We will always give you advance notice, all those who are watching uh, online. And we will try to encourage ourselves in the Lord. We were prepared for a time and a season like this. Uh, only thing that the technology, I've never seen the sound and the audio, video team so much on their toes in all these 12 years. <laughs> so active. So alive and so, they are more alive than the streaming. And uh, they are also hungry, so our dear sister Apu has been feeding hungry men. You know? So, since you do not know the people who are being seen, pray for them. Okay, we are here for you. Now let's look to the word. And as we look to the word, we go first to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 17. Verse 20 onwards. 20 onwards. We'll first read verse 20 onwards. And he said, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. One of the questions 
people keep asking. Can I continue? Yes, yes. YouTube too? Okay. Hmm? YouTube is on? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. One of the questions when all these, because we have to preach that is relevant to the time, and there's been never been a time like this. And the constant question is, constant question is, is this the end? Is this the end? The end means different things to different people. So there is this question that people are always asking, is this the end, is this the end, is this the end? And that's a question in everybody's mind. Everybody's mind. And even here, when Jesus walked on earth, this question was asked. Like I said, it means different things to different people. But here, the Pharisees are asking. So the question Christians ask, it's different. For them, the end means the beginning of something else. Is the kingdom of God here? Is the kingdom of God here? That's what they are all waiting for, and I hope that's what we are also waiting for. And Jesus is being asked this question, if you notice, by the Pharisees. Asked by whom? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. And when asked by the Pharisees, he gives them a very cryptic reply. He tells them, the kingdom of God does not come in ways that can be absurd. Okay? Meaning, and if you look at what he answers, he tells them, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there before, for the kingdom of God is within you. There's a fundamental issue which Jesus is talking about. If you're looking for the kingdom of God, it does not come with observation. It does not come for observation. People outside the system, that is the kingdom, doesn't matter how much they try with academic success or study or scholarship, they will not be able to know the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is within you. Meaning, what Jesus had told Nicodemus, if the kingdom of God is within you, you cannot see or enter the kingdom. It is the kingdom of God within you and me that tells us, wants us, prepares us for the kingdom that is coming. If we are outside the kingdom, then we will not be able to understand the coming of the kingdom or be prepared for the coming of the kingdom. This is similar to what Jesus had told about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, the world will not know him. And the world will not receive him. You cannot receive what you do not know. It is the Holy Spirit that prepares you for the coming of his son. It is the Holy Spirit. And through the book of Revelation, God says, all those who have ears, let them hear. All those who have ears, let them hear. That's what he says. Okay, so the kingdom of God is within us. And the kingdom of God within us, the sign of it, the actual sign of it is the spirit of God. Because the kingdom of God is what? Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In the midst of all situations, every situation, there is this guarding of righteousness, peace and joy by the Holy Spirit. And that's the kingdom of God. And that's the Holy Spirit that prepares people who are within the kingdom for the coming of the kingdom. 
So Pharisees who are outside the kingdom is asking this question. He straight away tells them it doesn't come with observation. You can be absolute fantastic scholars of the Bible. You will have no clue when the kingdom is coming. No clue when the kingdom is coming. Okay, And that's a very scary thing. Scholarship is good. Only if the kingdom is within you first. Because Nicodemus was a scholar of scriptures. But he had no... When Jesus told him something that is so simple for us, without scholarship, that you need to be born again. He didn't understand. And you ask anybody outside the kingdom, even in mainline Christianity, that you need to be born again. They don't understand it. They don't understand it. They will say, I was baptized as a child. I go to church regularly. No. They ask this question, this thing. So they are not able to understand. Nothing has changed in 2000 years. The kingdom of God is still the same. There is a humbling of oneself, receiving by faith the work of Christ alone and enter through that narrow gate and then suddenly you are in the kingdom and the kingdom starts making sense. Then when you read the Bible, you realize the Bible is all about the king and the kingdom. It's not about you. It's not about this world. It's not preparing you for this world. It's preparing you to get out of this world. So when you see all these signs, you read it differently. You don't read it with panic. You read it with hope and joy. So Christians are panicking and need to be very careful. They don't look at it and say, it's a sign, maybe you're outside the kingdom. Outside the kingdom. Okay? And then, if you go further down, the next verse, 22, he will. He then said to the disciples, that's interesting. The question is asked by the Pharisees. The answer is given to the disciples. And you see this consistent pattern in the Bible, and especially in the ministry of Jesus. In the ministry of Jesus Christ, there were three sets of people who always followed him, if you look at it. One set was the crowds, the large crowd. Second is this larger, smaller crowd, but they are also crowd. These are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Levites, the scribes, this religious crowd. And the third is a small group which are called the disciples. Three groups follow him wherever he goes. And you will always see his reaction to the Pharisees and the crowds are sometimes quite hostile. Quite hostile. He never answers directly, clearly to the Pharisees or the crowds. To the point he speaks to them only in ways they cannot understand. Cannot understand. We don't understand the ways of God, but we have to accept the ways of God. To the point, the disciples come and ask him, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? And he gives us an answer, fantastic answer. He says the secrets of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom is secretive. It's hidden. It's hidden. Secret means it's hidden. Something that is secret is hidden. If Apu says, I have a secret, we don't know. It's secret. Why? Because it's hidden. Why is it secret? Because it's hidden. If it's open, it's no longer secret. He says, the secrets of the kingdom of God is given to you and not to them. To whom is it given? It is given to the disciple. It's not given to the crowds. It's not given to the Pharisees. So one of the primary conditions to understand how the kingdom operates and the coming of the kingdom is first be a disciple. And the church has failed in this for 2,000 years and we are all guilty of it. Because the great commission was to go to the world, the ends of the nations and make disciples of all nations. We made followers and we made Pharisees. We didn't make disciples. And there is a problem. 
Okay, and if you look in the first pattern, you, you have these patterns in the Bible. If you see the first pattern that is happening, Israel leaves Egypt. One day God delivered them. He's taking them to the promised land. A type of the kingdom is taking them there. And there is this huge crowd called 600,000 men, women and children besides. So we look in terms of 600,000 men. In the 600,000 men is this huge group called the crowd. And there is a smaller group called the Pharisees with its 250 leaders, ecclesiastic leaders under the leadership of Korah, Datan and Abiram. And then there is three disciples. I'm talking about one generation. Disciples called Moses, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua Caleb representing, of course, the next generation. Three people are named over there. So you have these three people. And you let me ask you this. Who knew about the kingdom in their terms? Only these three. Only these three. Not the crowd. Not the leadership. Only these three. And if you actually look at it, Moses also entered the promised land, maybe a thousand years later, two thousand years later. But these three are the only ones who entered into the promised land because the others did not. The crowds were caught with this world. What to eat, what to drink, Egypt was better, Egypt. It's all connected with the issues of this body, this life. The religious group connected with, with religious pride. God does not speak to you only. God speaks to us also. We are all holy. Moses never said any of those things. He had no choice. God picked him up. He didn't pick himself. He didn't pick himself. Okay. So you see this pattern. And this pattern is very, 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 very important. This pattern is very, very, very important because you need to realize what we are seeing now is a worldwide epidemic. You know, it's come. We were prepared for this. I mean, if you are not prepared and you have not been listening to the messages and you are outside the kingdom, you did not know. We always knew these things are coming and we even had series on preparing for famine, preparing for this season. But it is not for this famine we were preparing you for. We are preparing for another famine, which is the most important. Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water but of the hearing of the words of God. This is the greatest danger that can happen to a man. Right now you see, see God is using symbols. God always uses symbols. He uses bread and wine to, to, to denote his life. He uses bread and water. He will use all these symbols of our physical, material world reality to talk about eternal things. Eternal things. So a physical famine is a reflection of a spiritual famine. So there is a physical famine that is happening. Like, now for the next 10 days, everybody is shut. Everything is shut. Okay? And everybody is panicking. About what? The necessity of stocking material, physical things which we need. But God is opening our eyes to say that. Have you stocked? Have you stocked the word of God? Have you stocked the word of God? Did you stock it enough? Did you? That's what God is asking. Did you make use of your time? But the days are evil. I told you to stock. In every generation, even in Babylon, a remnant that survived and came. See, everybody survived in Babylon, but only a remnant came to Jerusalem. That's what is important. Others' name we do not know. 
Jerusalem is a typical symbol of those who came out of captivity and came to God's presence back. Their names we know. Why? Because even in famine they had stored the word of God. And it didn't matter who they were or how well settled they were in life or not. In Babylon in his old age, Daniel is going through the scrolls of Jeremiah, of, uh, Jeremiah and he finds 70 years is up. It's time to go back. The heart is always towards Jerusalem. We have here, rise up and build. And this man is the cupbearer of the emperor, the most powerful man. And he's reached the pinnacle of his career, but his heart and his mind is in Jerusalem. And when he gets the news, he's heartbroken. And the question is, if we are people of the kingdom, where are we and what were we doing all this seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years, eleven years, twelve years? God gave us a lot of time. A lot of time. If you turn with me to the book of Genesis, if you turn with me to the book of Genesis, because this is what disciples do, and this is what how disciples function in the kingdom of God. This is our function in the kingdom of God. Genesis chapter 1, well, 41, and we will go through towards uh, 47 and 48. And 49. Got it? Genesis. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground forth brought abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, laid up the food in the cities, he laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. And Joseph, okay, yeah. So during the time of plenty. What did Joseph do? He stood. He stood. And if you, I mean, if you look at our website, though we were numerically speaking, very small church compared to big churches. No, everything is a comparison. But we stored so much word. And one of the churches, one of the reasons, honestly, one of the reasons our church did not grow in numbers is because of the length of the word we preached. And I refuse to change that. A lot of people try, if you make it 30 minutes, 40 minutes, we will come. Now they all want to sit at home and listen. I'm not talking about our people who are listening online. I'm talking about now they don't know what to do. We preached and we preached and we preached and we studied and we preached and studied and we made it available for everybody free. Somebody asked me sometime back, no, can you, uh, how is that your website doesn't have any link where you can send a donation? <laughs> I said, we don't want. We don't want a donation. We don't want a donation. You know, it's there. Audio, recordings. Transcript. We went even beyond that to have the f- entire transcript. If you look at generally transcripts to churches, they will only give few points and put it across as a tram. But we didn't. We just put it, made it available so every servant of God, every child, you want to read and listen. A lot of people said it was a real blessing for us to hear and to read simultaneously. A lot of people, we don't even know how many people worked behind the scenes. We don't even know over these years and they all made it possible. So in the years of plenty, we have stored up enough grain. Enough, enough grain. We did. 
It's available to anybody for the next 12 days, even if we are not able to come live stream. All you have to go to the website and keep listening and systematically keep listening and prepare your hearts and minds and allow God to speak. The problem is, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 7, Even the stalk in heavens knows her appointed times. The turtle dove, the swift, the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. This is God talking about. Do you know when Jeremiah wrote this? How many years ago? Almost 2600 years ago. Now we know about the migration of birds because of national geographic and all that. I mean God knew all of this. Those days in Jeremiah's time and all, they don't even know most of the part of the world. But God already knows from one end of the corner, when the winter comes, they are migrating all the way to Africa, 10,000 miles and 5,000 miles and all. And God says, you know what, they all know their times. But he says, my people do not know. People do not know. And these are all symbols before us. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 30 and verse 25, this is what God says. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in summer. They're very weak. I mean, you can crush a whole lot of them with one stamp. Very weak. But you know, they're very prepared for adversity. When summer comes, the ants cannot come out, especially Andhra Telangana heat. They are, they are prepared. God said, are we prepared? God is just giving us a window of time and says, Look, were you prepared? Now, even in this case, material case, didn't I tell you weeks early? It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. They will shut down because they have no option. Stock up, stock up, stock up, stock up, stock up. Enough. You don't have to hold, but just be sensible, physical. But we are not talking about physical things here, right here. The thing is, have you stocked up spiritually? To withstand a season like this. Because after pestilence comes famine. And after famine, if things get bad, can come wars and riots. Martial law in many nations could come. We don't know. And the question is, how are we spiritually prepared? In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 12 and verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 12. And verse 5, this is what scripture says. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, you get tired running with footmen. These are the soldiers who walk. Then how can you contend with horses? How can you contend with horses? And in the if in the land of peace in which you trusted and they wearied you, then how will you do in the flood pain, huh? John, he says when times were good and you are tired, now that pestilence and famine has come, how are you going to survive? How are you going to survive? How are you going to survive? That's the question God is asking. Because we win battles outside by the measure of our spiritual strength. These are not temporary battles. These are eternal battles. This is life and death, not temporary, temporal death or life, eternal life and eternal death. And that's what God is talking about. Did you get tired? 
Did you get tired? Now, why is our people excited when we preach for three hours in the morning and another hour in the evening? Because they were used to it. You're used to it. You are prepared. Always. Yeah, we are ready. We're used to it. Okay. But what if you are not used to it? What if you are not spiritually prepared for a time and a season like this? The fear of death will overwhelm you. How will you contend? That's the question. If you go back to Genesis 41 and verse 49, Scripture says, He had stored up so much. Stored up so much. You see, I always, as a servant of God, who reads the Bible, understand how dispensations have worked in every system. And I've always found every system is actually hostile to the true believing church. I always have to try to prepare God's people for the worst case scenario. You know what a worst case scenario is? A worst case scenario is like this. Complete lockdown without warning. Without warning. Meaning, suddenly nobody can go out. I mean, they haven't said that one person of a family can go out. But imagine, sudden lockdown. Nobody can go out. Nobody can come in. And you have no food. Okay? So, that's the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is where you are isolated, let us say, in prison. Worst case scenario in prison, in the isolation chamber of a prison. Do you have enough of the word stored in your spirit which you can bring out? You don't need this. You don't need this. It is hidden in your heart. Even if you do not know whole scripture by heart, that's what you know the principles because the messages are all the principles of God's kingdom. His word, his life is all imprinted in your soul. And you know this is, this is, this is, this is how I need to do everything. That's what the Bible is talking about, storing. Storing. So if you look at that passage over there of uh, Genesis 51, sorry, 41, we read 49, and then 53, suddenly it says, and 54, look at that. Scripture says, then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Okay? You need to realize the years of plenty was also in all the land. But only Egypt prepared. Egypt prepared because Joseph was in charge. It was not the years of plenty was only in Egypt. The word of God was freely available to the whole world. The word of God. But when the famine came, suddenly others realized, oh, we have to go online. And our people don't know the word. Because we never preached the word. We gave them this softy, soft, nice, cushy, comfortable messages. And now the times are so drastic. What do you tell them? Yeah? What do you tell them? 
Why do you tell them? And they're not prepared. They're not prepared. That's what. There was famine in all the lands, but the land of Egypt there was bread. Anybody who used what was available in these 12 years, whether they are in the church or not in the church, wherever they are, you know, they are all prepared. They are all prepared if they have made use of the material that was happening and did their own studies further. Everyone, whichever apartment you are living in, whichever part of the world, you are actually prepared to feed the others. Because you were never starved. You were ready. You were ready. You cannot blame that you were not fed. You cannot blame. And scripture says in verse 56, when the famine spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and started feeding. Okay? That's what we are called to do. It's famine. They will feed you. But let me tell you something in between. We read from verse chapter 41 from that narrative of seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. In between there is these uh, interruptions of God are interesting. Okay? Like mm, Genesis 37 will begin with the history of Joseph. Go all the way till 50. And in between there is a chapter talking about Judah and Tamar. Yes. Judah and Tamar. Interaction over there. Being saying, Don't get carried away by the history of Joseph because Jesus will come from Judah and Tamar. Don't forget. Joseph is a bigger picture over there, but the core of it is it's out of Judah and Tamar. Jesus will come, not out of Joseph. So suddenly there is a check. Check. Okay? But here, you look at this, an interesting two verses in between. Verse 50 to 52. In between. In 49, we saw he had stored up so much. Then in between, there is a change of narrative. What does it say? And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came whom Astanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of on board to him. So he had married there, he had two sons. Joseph called the name of the first one Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he named Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Listen to me carefully now. Whether you are live here or live online. Listen to me very careful. Why does God in the midst of a narrative about plenty and famine put these three verses? Because in the time of plenty, one man had discernment for God what to do. And during the time of famine, that one man is whom God uses to feed. It represents the believing church. Joseph represents the believing church. But how did he become like that? You learned how he became that by the naming of his sons. You don't become that in one day. God has to put you through certain situations and frame you through those situations before you can be that man who has the discernment of times and will store and feed when the season comes. So he calls his first son, what? What does he call his first son? Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? I've forgotten all my toil and my father's house. This is what a disciple is. If any man loves his father or mother or wife or children or anybody more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And when he gets his first son, by his naming, he's telling, I was a disciple. I put my God and his purpose ahead of everything else. 
You know, the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians all will say, do not grow weary in doing good. You see no rewards at all. You must have seen no rewards for worshipping for 12 years. You may have seen no rewards for praying for 12 years. You may have seen no rewards for praying for 12, preaching for 12 years, doing good to others for 12. No rewards, no rewards, no rewards, no rewards, no rewards. Don't grow weary. If you don't grow weary, God says at the appointed time, you will receive your reward. You see in those 13 years of imprisonment and slavery, Joseph never grew weary of doing good. And when the day comes, he's forgotten. Slaver. Okay, because now he's in charge. God says, you know what? All the days you spend the feet of the Lord studying the word of God, all the days you spend praying, interceding for others, all the days you spend helping others, the day is coming when the trumpet will be blown and you will realize my toil was not in vain. Everything we do by faith. Everything we do by faith. Do we do, we do it by faith? People will accuse you. People will say slander. It should not stop you. That's a test of your character. Because if it stops you, then you were never prepared. Never prepared. Because these circumstances are designed for what? To bring out what is within you. That's what God told about Israel. I led you into the wilderness, humbled you, caused you to hunger to show what was within you. Everybody jumped and danced when there was victory. But when the wilderness journey came, when they started running out of food and water, what was inside came out. What was inside that came out was had nothing to do with the circumstances. It just revealed what was inside. Like, you know, our old illustration. Okay, I don't have my water here. I mean, you don't have to go to get it. Remember those illustrations when I had a glass of water and I asked somebody to come and push me? And the water spilled on me. And I asked you, what? why did the water spill on me? And the answer everybody was said because somebody pushed you. But that's not the reason. The reason the water fell on me is because there's water in the glass. If it had been coffee, it would have been coffee. If it had been tea, it would have been tea. So when God uses these circumstances to push us, what is inside comes out. So in his father's house, in Potiphar's house, and in prison, you see, Joseph was consistent. What was inside came out. Integrity, righteousness, and the desire always to help somebody else. There's consistency. So now he's seated on the throne as prince of Pharaoh at the right hand of God. He's still the same. He's still a good steward. He's a good steward of his father's name in his father's house, a good steward in Potiphar's house, a good steward as assistant. To If you look at, in his life, Joseph was always like the right hand of his father. The right hand of Potiphar, the right hand of the warden, and the right hand of the father. So he represents Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. And if the church is seated in him, we become the right hand of God. Right hand of God. So you need to realize all these things that are happening is a revelation of who we are. So when he has Manasseh, he names his son and he says, I have forgotten my father's house and have forgotten my toil because 
good times has come. No. Good times has come. We need to also realize this. Are we attached to flesh and blood? Or are we attached to the spirit? Do we struggle consistently to do what is right and what is good? Though we may see no rewards in this lifetime, it is not like prosperity preachers say, name it, claim it, you will get it. Bible has both records in Hebrews chapter 11, the second half of the report. Women got their dead back from life, others did not. They were beaten, they were flogged, they lived in caves, they wandered in the wilderness, and God said God considered the world not worthy to receive them. It's, it's incredible the viewpoint. The viewpoint on earth is, these people are not worthy. And God says the world is not worthy of them. How many thousands of God's children are still now living in Middle East and so many places, Iran, all these nations persecuted, living like like nomads in Afghanistan, in caves, in Korea, North Korea, China. Do we know them? The government names them by saying you are not worthy in China. If you are a Christian, true believer, everywhere, you are not worthy. God says, you got it wrong. You are not worthy for them. But one day when the trumpet blows, they will forget their toil. We read that in the morning, we read it yesterday. That day God will come and make his dwelling place with us. And he himself will wipe away every tear, every grief, every sorrow. And he says, I am your God, you are my children. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says about that people, God says, he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed to be called their God. You know what? God is very proud to be called our God if we are part of Ephraim. These are the fundamental lessons we have to learn when these situations happen outside. When a lockdown happens, when famine comes, when pestilence comes, what is inside me is being revealed. How do I look at this situation? What am I seeing? How do I look at it? What is inside comes out? Am I panicking? Or I am rejoicing and grieving. See, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was a strange person. He was a man of sorrows. And yet he was anointed with joy more than his companions. We are dual creatures. When we look into the world, we have sorrow. When we look up, we have joy. Usually it's the other way. Average Christian. When they look out, they have joy. When they look up, they have sorrow. When you looked, you have to have sorrow. Even when I look into flesh and blood, extended family, all, I look that, no? Reached, career-wise, everybody is doing their cat's whiskers. When I look at them, there's only sorrow. The more they prosper, the more hardened their hearts are becoming. The more close their ears are becoming. So you don't, you don't look at their success with carnal eyes, you have to look at spiritual eyes and say, Lord, it's becoming more and more difficult. More and more difficult. There is sorrow when you look into the world. When you look up, there is joy. Jesus was that kind of a man. A man of sorrows, yet anointed with joy. And that's what Joseph is. He labored, he labored, he labored. We too labor. We too labor. 
No? Okay, modern technology and all is there. Okay, feels good. Okay, but it's just a feeling. At the end of the day, after all these years, when you go down to church and you preach, you will say, okay, still only so much people. Okay, we have 14,000 people, subscribers on podcast. Okay, it's a number. But we still live in the physical world. Physical world, right? But thank God these numbers are there. <laughs> numbers are there. No, so we also know it's not that we are not effective. God is still taking the word without us even seeing. And uh, people are hearing. So he named his first child Manasseh. What does it mean? I've forgotten my father's house. And I have my toils. That's a hallmark of a disciple. He loves his family and all, but he's attached to God. He will not love anybody more than his God. More than his God. He will not. And two, he will keep on laboring, toiling, toiling, toiling. What is inside is coming out. It is consistent. It is consistent. It's one thing I tell my wife. In spite of all these things happen in your life, don't stop being who you are. Don't change. You're a kind, compassionate, giving person from the day I have seen you. Don't let all this stuff that is being done to you, spoken about you, stop you from what you are. Let not that river stop flowing. Because that's what the devil does. He wants to stop that river of life flowing. Everybody from us, in whom the Holy Spirit is, Jesus said, it will be a river of life flowing out. Flows out in different ways. For me, it is preaching. When all these things happen, you notice our preaching never changes. It never, never, never changes. It never changes. So each one of you, Peter's maybe worship. It should not. It should only go up one more notch higher. One more notch higher. Somebody might be serving. It should go one more notch higher. The river only should grow this thing. Because there is no lack from the altar from where it flows. It flows and it flows and it flows and it flows. And when these things happen, it is a sign to us within. It's a sign to us. We need this sign. And the second thing it says is that he named his second son, he named him Ephraim. Why? Because God has made me fruitful. Where? In the land of suffering. Where did God make Joseph fruitful? Not in Canaan. In Canaan he had no suffering. He made him fruitful in the land of where he was imprisoned for 13 years was where he made him fruitful. And that's exactly Jesus said. If you're attached to the vine, I will prune you. And pruning is very, very painful. I will prune you. And only those who are attached to the vine get pruned. Why do I prune you? So that you shall be more fruitful. That's the purpose of pruning. So get these two things that are put over there because these are all hallmarks of disciples. Because everybody wants to know when is the kingdom coming. And Jesus says the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Either you will know it or you will not know it. You will know it or you will not know it. It does not come with observation. Then he turned to the disciples. He didn't give the answer to the Pharisees. You'll always see Jesus speaks and teaches the disciples. And let's go back to Luke. Chapter 17. He turned to the disciples. Then he answers the disciples. 
Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. He immediately makes a distinction, which only disciples will understand. The Pharisees ask about the kingdom. What do the Pharisees ask? Kingdom. Jesus answers the disciples about the king, not the kingdom. He does not answer about the kingdom. He answers about the king. About the king. He says, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. He's only telling to the disciples. Come here, Peter. Peter is a disciple. I'm Jesus Christ. This is Peter, real Peter. I'm Christ, he's Peter. Okay. So Peter and I had walked for three and a half years. Three and a half years. We had seen everything. He had seen everything. He tried to stop me also a few times, but he's seen it all. And he had walked with me, lived with me, fellowshiped with me, ate with me, prayed, watched everything he's seen. So he knows what is it like one of the days of the Son of Man. He knows what it is like. Because he's been with me. Okay. And then he says, you will long for that. Meaning, a disciple is separated from the rest of the crowd by the longing of their heart. And the longing of a heart is for the Son of Man. That's how the disciple. We have different longings. It's not that all the longings are bad. Honestly, like, I long to go back home. I want to go back home because I have two ladies sitting in home. My mother and my wife. Two ladies in a house. Okay. But, just for a, just imagine for a, you see, this is why Jesus in that narrative at the end, you know, in this narrative of the last, he says, remember Lord's wife. Here is God pulling them. Here is she looking back. So where was her longing? Where was her longing? You want to talk about the last days? Jesus said, last days does not come with observation. The key to the last days for disciples is longing in your heart. Meaning, there's so many layers. He says, why should I reveal to people who don't long for me? Why should I reveal myself to people who don't long for me? There's a kingdom of God within and there's a kingdom of God outside. It's like Mercury. You know, you know, Mercury, when we were children, we loved this Mercury balls you put over there and we would watch it. One big ball it becomes. And we are always juggling it around, see how they all become. It's literally like that. 10,000 believers with the kingdom of God within and then one day it comes, they become one mass. Because inside they were always longing for that to come. They are the ones who will exalt and rejoice. The kingdoms of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the longing within and the long outside has become one. The others are worried. Oh, stock market has gone down. And now 12 days shut down. How will I farm? How will I plant? How will I sow? How will I reap? Giving in marriage. All those things. A lot of people, Christians will worry. 12 my married daughter's wedding was fixed on 29th. Now it is locked down. Now I have to postpone. I heard the news, Kerala. One wedding has been postponed already three times because of this. 
coronavirus. And Jesus said, that will be the concern of their minds. Giving in marriage, marriage, what to eat, what to drink. Noah, Lord, eating, drinking. Is there anything wrong? No. Marrying and giving in marriage? No. Building and planting? No. Nothing wrong. The question is, even when you are doing this, what is your longing? Remember in the book of, I forgot, one of the minor prophets actually says, when the day of the Lord is coming, blow the trumpet, let the bride come from a bridal chamber and go to fasting. Those are stunning verses. She's in the bridal chamber getting ready for her wedding. And then he hears the news, the Lord of Israel is coming and she's going into fasting and preparing for this and not that. Got it? It is there, it is there in Joel. Let her come out. See, the picture is there throughout the Bible from Rebecca onwards. No? 16? Yeah. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. The pictures which I got, no? Like they were saying, the children were more excited to listen to the word with their notebooks, watching the whole thing on the computer. Everywhere. Oh, you know, our our babies, our children, all we put them into their minds and hearts did not go waste at a time like this. All the children everywhere in our homes are sitting before the laptops with their notebooks and listening to the message and taking their own notes. Every one of them. But I love our children. Because, you know, we went through so much about that little concept about training these children in the ways of God and educating them too. Okay? Like last, um, Siri just went. And so when Siri went, they all had to go to Shishu Hut. So, uh, no, little Sarah was with me. No, so I was studying and she said, who doesn't disturb at all. So I gave her something. She finished reading. Then she took a paper. Grandpa, I want to color something. It was okay. Give. She, and she had I no pencil, so I gave her a pen. And it's still over there. She drew a nice little picture, her own lots of hearts and all. She says, Grandpa, I love you very much, but I love Jesus more. Honestly. Super. <laughs> <laughs> These are the babies who are coming out. Gather the children and the nursing babies. The bridegroom and the bride comes out. That's what God is talking about. Longing? Longing? Look at Philippians chapter 1. Our hero. There is no hero like him. Chapter 1. 21, 22, 23. For me to live is Christ. To die is. Can we put it, put this in our days, our times? For me to live is Christ and pestilence is gain. For me to live is Christ and coronavirus is gain. This is a man who would say that. Coronavirus is gain. I mean, coronavirus, you, you breathe a little and you go into the ICU, government takes you in the ambulance, gives you a ward, everything and all that. Poor man's head was cut off and he told it was gain. And he called it departure. Imagine being taken over there and your head put over there and as the sword goes up, he's thinking, I'm going home. I'm going home. Few more seconds. He probably in his heart 
in his spirit was waiting for it to fall so that he could go to the other side. He can't go on his own. God has to make a way for him to go. He saw death that way. Death is. And in this plague that is taking place and fear has gripped the world, how many believers are looking at, because what are they afraid of? Morning we said, it's a fear of death. How many of them see death is gain? Everybody thinks death is loss. Death is loss. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot. He says, if I live on, God gives, then I will keep working for you and for him. But I am hard pressed between the two. Hard pressed between the two. He did not, he was not married. He did not have a family. So the church was his family. He says, I'm caught between the two, the family and Christ. To depart, be with Christ, which is far better. He said, if you ask me what, where do you want to go, he'll say, I want to go to Christ. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is what needful for you. Can every man think like that? If I live, it's good for my family. But if you ask me, I want to go with my Christ. Every wife think that way. If you ask me, <laughs> if I stay, it's good for you, Raj. I'll cook for you. But if you ask me, I would like to go with him. Sometimes spouses will get offended when they hear that. But that's the truth. The longing. Longing. That's what God is telling the disciples. We long for one of my days. The question is, did we have one of those days with God so that we could long for that day? One day, you just spend time with God. In worship, in prayer, in meditation. And you know God was there. And God was there. And God was there. And the more you experience that in the spirit, the more you long it to become a physical reality. That's what rapture is. Rapture is for a prepared people. Not for all people. There's a longing. In the spirit, we are experiencing it, experiencing it, experiencing it. That's why the Bible talks all these things, taste and see that the Lord is good. People will ask, how can we taste the Lord? They sound like Nicodemus. How can I be born again? No. Oh, taste and see. Your word is sweeter than honey in the rock. They're all connected with longing. And Jesus is giving us clues over there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, after writing a tough letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 16 and verse 22, this is what Paul says. I'm writing with my own hand, but if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. So you have to read Understand the context. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord in this manner, that is cry every day is Lord, come Lord, Maranatha, come Lord, let him be cursed. What is that curse? Let him be left behind. Why should you take those people? Let them go through tribulation. Let them go through it. That's a reading of it. If they are not loving you that way, and after this entire thing you did for mankind from the beginning till today, and the mercy first, remember, thank God I was born a man and not an angel. But if I am an angel and I had to be, I accidentally happened to become one of that one third who fell away, there would have been no redemption for me. You need to realize two thirds are with, but one third fell away. That runs into billions maybe. 
And there is no redemption for them because they saw him and fell. So there is no redemption. So we say, Lord, thank I am a man. <laughs> there is redemption for me. You didn't die for any angel. You died for me. And then you look at all that he has done for me. And then the what he is planning for me. It is not that, okay, you get saved and be all of the chaprasis, sweepers in heaven. No, he says, my sons and daughters, you inherit all. You will reign with Christ Jesus, the overcomers. When you hear all these things, he said, if you don't long for his coming, let him be cursed. Curse. So let me ask you this question. How do you see the pandemic, coronavirus, as a curse? Or maybe this is a doorway through, I will go through. And if I don't go through the coronavirus, maybe because you need me to be more fruitful, I'm fine with either way, I'm fine. If I go through, I'm going to you. If I don't go through, then I have to labor more. So I don't see the coronavirus as a curse. I see it more as a doorway. One way. Either a doorway, I will become more fruitful, or it will doorway, I will go to you. Because this is the cry of my heart. I long for you, Lord. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. That's what God is talking about. That's what the picture is given there in the ideal picture between Abraham, the father, Eliezer, the Holy Spirit, Isaac, representing Jesus and Rebekah. And the family, the mother, the brother, everybody asks, let the girl stay for 10 days, let us eat and drink. And all 10 signifies government, the time we will spend on earth is those 10 days. Ten commandments. We are judged of our life on earth by the spirit of ten commandments. Ten denotes the number of days of a man's life on earth. After that it is judgment. Let her be with us for ten days. And Elisa says, no, 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 no. I need to go, I need to go, I need to go, I need to go. So they said, okay, we are asking stay. You are saying go. Let's ask the girl. They called the girl and said, what do you say? She said, I'll go. I will go. The question you asked Rebecca is, have you seen Isaac? No. Do you know Isaac? No. What do you know? Only what I have heard. Have you seen Jesus? No. Have you heard about Jesus? Yes. Will you go? Rebecca said, I will go. And they get on their camels and like I said last time, they went and they traveled and went and traveled and went and traveled and went and traveled, 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 traveled. It must have been the most, I mean, if you ever, no. Dolaridon ever got on a camel. Oh boy, I'm telling you, even an elephant is more comfortable. There's no more uncomfortable mode of transport on earth than a camel. From Haran to Canaan. This girl. Then I like that portion over there. It's interesting, no? We had looked at it last time, I think, no? You got it? 60, 62. No, 64. 64. Chapter, uh, chapter is 24. 24, 64. Genesis 24, 64. Just look at it so we will understand. Okay? Genesis 24. Rebecca lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. Okay. Okay, 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 yeah. And then, uh, verse 65. 64, 65. We look at those two verses. For she said to this, who is this man walking in the fields to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. She took a veil and covered herself. Okay. 
Isaac was walking towards her. She lifted up her eyes. And she got down. And then she asked the question, who is that man? The question is, that's not what we will do. We'll ask the question first, who is this man? And then get down. Right? How did she know this was the man whom she had never seen? How did he know this is the girl whom he had never seen? There's something that is happening over there. Isaac is moving towards Rebecca. Rebecca lifts up her. She's sitting on the camel. She's sitting on the camel. Give me a chair. She's sitting on a camel. Okay. You'll have to lift your camera, okay? I am Isaac. That's Rebecca. I am Rebecca. That's Isaac, okay? She's on the camel height. Where is she? Camel. Where is Isaac? Where is Isaac? Ground level. Where is she? On the? Yet what does scripture say? She? She? Lifted. You don't lift, you look down. Even if you're looking down, still in your spirit you're looking up if it is Jesus. How can you lift up your eyes from the back of a camel when the man is down and see him? So it's more than Rebecca and Isaac. She lifted up her eyes and she saw him. She got down from her camel, then asked the us, Eliezer, who we see. We will also lift up our eyes and the Holy Spirit will say, that's your master. And everybody will dismount, get down from wherever perch you are sitting. It's not a physical thing, a spiritual. You will come down, you will humble yourself. Every knee shall bow. The first knees that will bow is the bride's knee. She will have the honor to bow first. Everybody will bow. But she will have the honor to bow first. That is longing. Unless you see discipleship this way, you and I will never know whether we are disciples. Longing is important. That is how you read this man called David in an old covenant man. You know, we sing, we read... One day in your court, sis, I was glad, very glad. This is a king speaking. The king speaking. Why? His longing is always for God. Longing. Nothing changed him. You need to realize this is about David. What never changed David is that when he was an unknown little shepherd boy in the wilderness taking care of his father's sheep, his longing was for God. When he was recognized and brought to the king's palace and he was recognized as a musician, his longing was still for God. Then he becomes a champion of Israel and is sent out to fight. His longing was still for God. When he's leading his band of 600 men and he's become a leader on his own standing, his longing is still for God. When he's anointed king in Hebron over a couple of tribes, his longing is still for God. Seven years later, when he is anointed king over all of Israel, his longing is still God. Why? Let's bring the ark. And he's dancing. And people are looking down. His wife is looking down with contempt. And he's dancing like an ordinary man. And he takes off his royal robe. And that's why she is upset. Because he says, I can't wear that robe. Because there is only one king in Israel. That is him, not me. If I wear the robe, then there are two kings. There cannot be two kings. There can be only one king. If the ark is out there in the public, then that's the king. 
God's presence is there, it's not me. And I'm just as ordinary as all the others. The longing was always about God. It was always about God. You will always see that his longing for God. His son takes over the throne. He's running out of the city. His faithful ones are running out of the city. And they bring the ark. Anybody will say, get the ark, get the ark, bring the ark. Because the ark becomes the point in which people will rally around it. It's the symbol of the presence of God. So if the ark is with David, people will say, God is with David. If the ark is with Absalom, people will say, God is Absalom. He said, let the ark go back to Jerusalem. That's its rightful place. It doesn't come with me. If God wants me, he will take me there. The ark will not come with me. I will go to the ark. If it's God's will. Who will say that? That's not a good military tactic. And he said, let it go. Back to Jerusalem. That man, you know, simple shepherd boy, had a longing for God. This is what separates. This is what separates. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Do we have that longing? Everything else may be good. All things good. Everything else. Our everything, our work, our life, our ministry, everything may be good because the church in Ephesus, the first church, Jesus came and inspected and then judged. Everything was good. He had nothing bad to tell about them except one thing. You have no longing for me. You decide to do my works, but you do not really desire me. You have, do you know from the height you have fallen? You have forgotten your first love. Go back and do the things which you did first. Did first. Otherwise, I will come. Take away the lampstand. All those dear brethren who are watching uh, online, you need to realize we are a captive audience by the government. So we have no compulsion to stop. Okay, we don't have to stop. So we will preach and you have something to do, urgent, you can do, come back and it's, it's being recorded. Okay, so I don't see any pressure to stop. Let's go back to Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. We read 22. He will And they will say to you, And he says, you will not see it. Meaning, he says, I'm not going to give you those physical evidences which you are longing for. Right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you those evidences. I'll call you to walk by faith and not feelings. Didn't he say that in verse 22? Which? Verse 22? Yeah, 22, 23. No? You will not see it. Right? You will not see it. We want those tangible evidences. We have may not have done anything the whole week, but when we come to church and Peter is leading worship, we feel because of the music and everything, our hair standing up and we feel, oh Lord, I experienced you today. God says, you didn't. You didn't experience me today. If you had experienced me in the seven days, six days before that, then maybe this, but I didn't say that I will give you a physical evidence. You will see one of those. You're called to walk by faith. You may see nothing. You may see nothing. You may feel nothing. But once you have understand the truth of who God is, God is truth, His Son is truth, the Spirit is truth, the Word is truth, and the Church is truth, can you stand on it alone? 
can you stand on it? This is who God is. And I don't need, I don't need any more things in my feelings. To acknowledge Him, to love Him, to serve Him, I don't need anything. This is enough. Then to those people who long for God, verse 23, they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out and follow them. He says, you know what, when you have this longing and the longing becomes very emotional, the chance of getting deceived is very much. You can get deceived because the enemy sees your longing. The longing is right. The enemy sees your longing. Looking at those longing, the enemy will bring messages by saying that, He's here. He's there. That is why feelings are good. Feelings should be a good servant and not a good master. That's the problem. When you are led by your feelings, you don't know where you will lead, where you will be led. One of the books that is taking over the Christian world is the book of Enoch. Nobody will read the book of Enoch unless you are longing for the Lord's coming. Because Enoch is the one who prophesied the Jesus' second coming. So there is a book around the book of Enoch. Did the Jews accept the book of Enoch? No. Did the church leaders ever accept the book of Enoch? No. But everybody is reading the book of Enoch. Even if they don't study the book of Revelation, they study the book of Enoch. And if you tell them anything, they get offended. Not in my, this church, in another group, because I preached about this in that language, one guy who was involved in, was so upset he left the group. He was upset over Enoch. Book of Enoch. But the question I ask is this. It took Moses 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, absolutely in the presence of God, saturated by the presence of God, to receive the first five books. First five books. The first five books of the Bible was written by Moses. And to get it, it took him 40 days of fasting up in the mountain in the presence of the glory of God and he got it. It's not like other books where an angel came and told and all that. Please understand, the the way the first five books, which is called the law, came, Moses. So he got Genesis, he got uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, these five books he got. And in Genesis chapter 5, you have Enoch coming. And how come God didn't give Moses the book of Enoch? How come he didn't give? And how come somebody else is writing a book of Enoch and people are running after it? It's because you have a longing, but your longing is not solidly based on faith and people will deceive you. They will say, he's here, he's there. Everybody is running for prophecy conferences. And do you know these prophecy conferences you need to go and some of the places I heard you have to register 3,000 rupees, 5,000 rupees. They will not go to church services which are free. will go for prophecy conferences paying through their nose. Why? Because you have been deceived. You have been deceived. And that's what Jesus said very carefully. When you look at all these signs, be very careful. Be very careful. Next verse, Jesus says, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his his day. He says, you know what, when he comes, every eye will see. Every eye will see. 
I heard about a train, actual, even this century, a train that was going from Scotland to England or something and a set of senior Bible college teachers, pastors were all sitting and discussing eschatology. What's the second coming of all city, animated in the clerical colors and all city. And the train conductor was coming and checking tickets. So one of them said, uh, asked him, uh, do you believe in Christ? He said, yes. What do you have? What is your view on eschatology? The second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, every eye will see in the lamb and the lamb will win. <laughs> every eye will see and the lamb will we don't need to know so many things. Certain things are very clear. Jesus said the, the days of the Son of Man when he comes will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. They will be eating and drinking, giving in marriage, getting married, planting and building, buying and selling until the day Noah entered. Until Lot was taken out. And then, meaning, he won't come at a time like this. He will time come when it is absolutely normal. He won't come at a time like this. Now people are like panicking. Everybody is saying, who is coming? Who is coming? Who is coming? Who is coming? He says, I won't come like that. I will come when everything is normal. So the only ones who are longing and the kingdom was within them, they will know and they will be prepared because I will come totally unawares at a time you least expect. Least expect. And only those who are prepared, it's like, you know, when the teacher comes in the class and says, today, put all your books away, take your notebooks, it's a surprise test. 99% of the church, ah, sir, we didn't prepare. One fellow is already. This is the guy who studied daily. He's prepared. The surprise test is not a surprise for him. It's not a problem at all because he daily did his devotions. He was always with the Lord. He always kept short accounts with God. He repented, put things right, applied the blood, confessed, walked with God. His soul was clear. He tried his best to walk blameless before God. He didn't wasn't perfect, but he was blameless. He knew the scripture. He walked in it. And therefore, it didn't actually matter to him which day the Lord came. That's what the Bible is talking about. Deception, 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 deception. Be very careful. Jesus also, when he wants in Matthew 24, Luke 21 and all, the first thing he wants is, beware, don't get deceived. Don't get, because deception, not pestilence or famine, it's not that. Deception is the biggest weapon of the enemy. It's not even death. Fear of death is deception. Fear of death is deception. And he uses the deception of the fear of death to trap people. So what happens during this time? Literally, lot of panic conversion. Oh Lord, 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 forgive me, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Then pestilence is over, shutdown is over, and they are also over. They go back to their old life. You know, it deceives you. You know where deception started? In Revelation chapter three. Sorry, Genesis chapter three one. Deception begins. Two chapters of creation. Third chapter, deception begins. You know where it ends? It ends in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. That is after Satan has been imprisoned for a thousand years. 
Jesus has ruled earth for a thousand years. And this is what Bible says. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive. Think this is only the New Testament. Think this as the entire Bible. Two chapters in the beginning. Okay? Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Two chapters at the end. Revelation 21, Revelation 20. The whole in between is the devil working through deception. 1 and 2, you don't see him. 21, 22, you don't see him. The rest, he's actively involved in deceiving people. From chapter 3 to Revelation 20. And God says, be careful my children who long for me. He will try to deceive you too. Deceive you too. Motions are good. Servants. But bad. Masters. You will long. It's good to long. But do not be deceived. The only way you don't get deceived is you know what is written. And you have the confirmation inside the spirit and the truth. The letter and the spirit. The letter of the law kills. The spirit gives life. Allow the word of God and the spirit of God to operate. And the key is the spirit of God. It's not the word of God. The key is the spirit of God. All those who have ears, let them hear. So it's the Holy Spirit who speaks. Faith comes from? So it's the Holy Spirit who speaks. And hearing from thee? Because the Pharisees had the word of God. Jesus had the word and the spirit. The word and the spirit. And all his walk is connected with keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Don't upset him. Don't deceive him. Don't oppress him. Everything is about the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's what the Bible is talking about. So be good students of the Word of God. And every teacher should be a good steward. And as we come to a close, maybe we should close, right? Unless somebody is complaining online. Hmm? <laughs> we go to Matthew chapter 13. As I close. Matthew chapter 13. We read from verse 24. An aside, but connect to this. He who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands, uh, produces some hundredfold, some sixty, thirty. So he's always giving parables. And the parables are all about what? The kingdom of God. Not about the world. Kingdom of God. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us to go up and gather them up? But he said, no, 
lest while you gather up the tares, you will also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he gives another illustration. The illustration is about a field. And let's go back to where we began. Okay. Now he first says, the seed is the word of God. So we know he is using a parable, using a day-to-the-life common illustration, which they all understand, we also understand. Farming illustration. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. So, the word was preached and a good seed was sowed. And we have to protect that seed. You have to be alert and awake to keep that seed protected. But Bible says, while men slept, they slept. Slept meaning they did not go to sleep. They allowed the spirit to go to sleep and they are watching YouTube. I don't know Telugu stars name and all. What are their names? Chiranjeevi. Or Mahesh, suddenly Mahesh Babu. <gasps> so what happens? The enemy is sowing tears. Whatever. Because you have, you know, in farming, it has to be protected. Especially when you have planted, when they are at the tender stage, you have to protect it. Two, two times you have to protect, usually if you look at it, one when it's beginning and when it is full grown. When the fruit is out, because the birds come for the fruit. Right? But they didn't. So when they were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed seed. Tears. The problem with the tears is the tears and the wheat look alike. Absolutely identical. They will sit in the same pew. They may be sleeping in the same double bed. So the angels came and asked. That's it. Basically, it's the angel. Okay, tears also appear. So the servants of the honor came and said to him, "Who are these servants? Basically, who are the angels? It's not pastors. Pastors doesn't know who is who, which is which, which is there. Only angels know it." They said, "Lord, how does it come?" Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tears? He said to them, my enemy has done it. So the angel said, do you want to come and go separate them? God said, no, not now. Let them grow together. How easy ministry would be if God sent angelic host to separate the wheat and tears, right? You get out, you get out, get out, get out, get out. So suddenly we have a nice, pure, blameless church sitting over. Maybe five people, but you have no trouble at all. Absolutely holy worshipping group. God said, no, don't do that. Let them grow together. Why? Because their lives are intertwined. The wheat and the tares are in the same field and if you look under the ground, their roots are all in it. He says, if you pull them out, you'll create a lot of damage. Create a lot of damage if you pull them. Let them grow. Let them grow. Let them grow. Let them grow. And then scripture says, until harvest. So you need to realize the separation is done, not also done by pastors, it is done by angels. The end of the age. Until harvest, let them grow. And how could you know the difference? It was harvest time. You shall know them by their fruit. You shall know them by their fruit. And you know what the book of Revelation says? You know what? This is something that is there in the book of Revelation chapter 22. Yeah, chapter 22, right? 22, 11. Yeah, Revelation 22, verse 11. 
He who is unjust, let him be unjust. Who is filthy, let him be filthy. Still, he who is righteous, let him be righteous. Who is holy, let him be still holy. He says, you know what? There is something that is happening which is not visible to us. We always look at the world and say, oh my God, what is happening? The world is getting wickeder and wicker and worse. God says, you don't worry. What you don't see is the church is getting better and better and better. Another side you don't see, I see. There is a church that is hidden which nobody sees. God sees it's getting more just, more righteous, more holy. Church is going this way, the world is going this way. At the harvest time, I will show it. I will separate it. He said, don't worry about the world. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. And we misinterpret it. What is grace given? Grace is given so that we may reign in righteousness. So there is a set of people who are using in the most wicked times to use grace and growing and growing and growing and growing in righteousness. Here is a set of people getting more and more unrighteous, unjust. So in the midst of a Gentile dark nation, Joseph shone like a star. In the midst of in Babylon in iniquity, Daniel and his three French stone like shone like stars. If God hadn't seen them, we wouldn't have seen them and known them. But God saw them. God saw them. We have these records of people because God saw them. It's not man saw them. So God says these two are growing side by side by side by side. They are growing. And at the end of the age, what will happen? They will be separated. Two will be in my bed. Huh? One will be taken. And nobody knew. <coughs> nobody knew. Is it possible? Of course. Like I said, how many times does Peter call Lord righteous? This righteous man, in that ungodly generation, in his righteous soul, was tormented by the unrighteous deeds you mean to say you mean to say that his wife did not see the righteous torment of her husband i mean if anybody could have seen it is mrs lot she didn't see and she was untouched by it all yet at harvest time they were separated and they were separated at the gate separated. And they, they, like I said in the morning, was it today or yesterday? They were intimate because they had probably four daughters, but they had no intimacy. She really never knew or appreciated what her husband was. So God separated them. So don't take these things lightly. Because we as God's people look at life, look at incidents with completely different, different, different uh, eyes. Different eyes completely. And that's what God is talking about. We can look at the story of Noah negatively or positively. But Noah found grace in God's eyes. The world was like this, covered in darkness. It never found grace. In the dark sky, one light is blinking. The whole story after that is about that one guy. One guy. Right? And this is a righteous man who's preaching a righteous message for 100, 120 years. 
day in and day out his preaching and living it out in the front of his family. Friend of his family. Forget the people. Friend of his family. They see this man. They see his words. They see his life. They see his work. And when they come through the judgment, seven people in the boat owe their entire life to the righteousness of this one man. And when that man falls once, one son, you'll only know that and not the other. He forgot the 120 years of his father's righteousness and magnified one failing of his father. And God said, curse you see. Curse you see. He got deceived. He got deceived. Because scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. And here there was not a multitude, only one. <laughs> this father had a multitude of righteousness. One little failing. He was drunk and lay uncovered. What did Ham do? That's why we have to guard our hearts. All these things are written as examples to us upon whom the end of ages has come. End of ages has come. So tonight as I close, please remember this. There's only one calling in the Bible. It's a calling to be a disciple. There's no other calling. Be a disciple or perish. There's no other calling. You are not called to be a religious scholar. You are not called to be a follower. You are only called to be a disciple. There is no other calling in the Bible. You are either a disciple and you will go to the other side or you will perish. And all these things that are happening around us will show us has discipleship been bound into my bones? Into my very soul. Have I been reframed? Am I conforming to the pattern of the world when I see what is happening? Or have I been confirmed to the image of my Savior? There are two conforming in the Bible, no? Whoever he has predestined, he is conforming. Do not be conformed in the pattern of the world, but be conformed. So when Jesus knows, it's time to go to Jerusalem to die. What the scripture says? They sang a few songs and he went. Huh? What a testimony. Where are you going? To die. How are you going to die? Beaten, broken beyond recognition and then crucified. How are you going? Singing. Why? To do my will. In the volume of a book it is written, to do thy will have I come. It gives me incredible joy to do his will, even it means to die on the cross. Did you see how we looked at calamity? Have you looked at calamity? Because that shows who's inside, who's winning inside, who is triumphing inside. And we look at it and we say, Lord, I'm fine. If I survive, I'll be more fruitful because this would have taught me even more lessons. If I don't survive, I know where I am going. I know where I am going. Because why I am saying is this because the world has never seen anything like this. Never, ever seen 
anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. Panic nations, cities, a country like India being shut down. Can you imagine? Indian, I think after the British started the railways, I don't think ever in Indian history the railways has shut down. As far as I understand Indian railways, um, Indian railways uh, transports 12 crore passengers a day. 120 million people travel by train every day. Closed. That was old number. I don't know current number. When I was fascinated by railways. Can you imagine what is happening before our eyes? What I am saying is don't let the science miss us. Read it correctly. Read it correctly. And make corrections. Lord, help me to be a disciple. Lord, help me to be a disciple. Let there be this longing in my heart. That I too can cry out with your other servants have gone before me. That cloud of witnesses. I should be able to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And if you tarry, let me be more fruitful in your vineyard. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We just praise you. We just worship you, Lord. Thank you for all these dear children who have gathered here. In spite of all the restrictions, few of us. And all your children who are watching from wherever they are, bound by one Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, our Christ, never leave us, Lord. Never leave us, Lord. Guard us. Guard our hearts. Guard our minds. Guard our hands. Guard our feet. And above all, guard our ears. Let our ears never lose their capacity to hear from you. Never, ever lose, Lord. Never, ever lose. And I pray, Lord, all your children who are taught these 12 years, wherever they are, in church, other places, let them arise at a season like this. For like Esther, it was told, for a time and a season like this, they were prepared. And once again, I pray, every one of them in their apartments, in their streets, in their towns, in their cities, will stand up like Aaron did between the living and the dead and will make intercession. And you will hear their cry and turn the hearts of the people. Let intercessors arise, O God, in this season. Let people shut off everything else. Everything else has been shut down, but the internet and the TV lines are still on. But let them shut it down, Lord. Social media, shut down. And keep it open only for your word. Yet spend time in that closet, restoring the relationship with God and with man. Vertical and horizontal. This 12-day, 10-day lockdown. Humble themselves. Truly humble themselves. And come through that gates of righteousness. And when these 10 days, 2 weeks, 1 month, 2 months are over, it will be a different set of people the world will see. Fearless like Elijah. Three and a half years, nobody saw him. Three and a half years later, when he stepped out, he was standing on Mount Carmel alone. Confronting powers of darkness. Because that three and a half years of quarantine had made him into a different man altogether. And he could stand there alone. 
and bring a nation back to God. And I pray the spirit of Elijah will fall upon your church. And they will stand there as voices in this wilderness, in this darkness, declaring the coming of the Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you for this opportunity, Lord. How many times we were mocked for holding this place? Does a small church need such an office? How many times I was stressed to the point of giving it up? Now at a time and a season like this, this very place has become a blessing to many. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Eight years from the time this place was finished, nobody has lived here. It's been the churches. Eight years till today. Eight years. This is the eighth year. And this eighth year, this place has become a greater blessing than all the meetings we had. Because at the time of God's people's need, you opened this place. Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, in the next nine days, in spite of the restrictions. Make a way open that we can come and continue encouraging your children and preparing them. Meet their maker. Thank you, Father. Thank you. The hand of God rests upon everyone, every part of the globe, whether it is day or night. The hand of God rests upon them. Whether it is pestilence that flies by night or the plague that flies by day, you're the God of day and night. For the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's God of the valleys and the God of the mountains. So, let your hand be there over your people. Protect them. Preserve them. Keep them, Lord. And all our children, we commit them into thy hands. And we proclaim and confess over our children that all our children in the church who were once in the church, little ones, grown-up ones, teenagers, every one of them, all our children will be taught of the Lord. And great shall be their peace. Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, we worship you, we glorify you, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.